You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A new Fed narrative has bond yields jumping today. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari says he's open to pausing but not ending rate cuts. He's a voting member. So could a skip be just a hop away? And it comes as a debt default looms large and tensions with China keep rising. So why are stocks largely shrugging it off? Plus, there's a key metric flashing a major warning sign in the trucking industry. Is that a sign of what's to come for the rest of the economy? The CEO of FreightWave says he hasn't seen anything this extreme since COVID. And the AI gold rush continues, of course. And one of our guests has an under-the-radar name he's calling a clear leader. We'll explore that a little later on. First, though, let's get the latest on these markets with Mr. Chu. All right. So, Kelly, you mentioned some of those Fed headlines and Minneapolis's Kashkari. It's all playing into the narrative right now. But overall, we got a market that's pretty mixed and one that's kind of in a wait and see mode, right, about a lot of the things happening geopolitically with regard to debt ceiling issues and earnings reports and everything. But the Dow Industrials are down just about one quarter of one percent, thirty three thousand three twenty seven. The last trade there, about a one tenth of one percent gain for the S&P 500 now hovering just a hair below the forty two hundred mark. Uh, and again, the trading range has been somewhat I'll call it a little bit more muted today. At the highs of the session, we were actually positive by 18 points and actually down by 12 at the lows. So a decent-sized range. We're sitting right about in the middle of it right now, but we've seen gains and losses. The Nasdaq Composite, the real outperformer, up about one-half of 1%, 62 points to the upside, 12,720. Kelly mentioned the rates picture. We're seeing pretty much everything across the yield curve, pretty much every maturity rise in terms of yields, fall in terms of price. The one-month T-bill, one that's kind of a little bit more sensitive to what's happening with the stalled debt ceiling negotiations, has now risen up to about 5.6% right now. The one-year T-bill, just a hair below 5.08%. The 30-year long bond, 397 And by the way, yields have risen now for the 10-year note, the benchmark for about seven straight days. So we're keeping a close eye on all those shifting narratives around the Fed, the debt ceiling, and everything else, moving everything up across the curve for rates. The stocks to watch today, Pfizer in particular, some headlines coming out about one of its uh, treatments in the works right now to treat weight loss, a pill format one that seems to do just as well, perhaps even more effectively than some competing products out there, specifically from Nova Nordisk. You can see when those headlines came out right around 11 a.m. Eastern time, and it's been pretty much holding near these session highs for the most part all day long. And by the way, I'll just show you the intraday board of what's happening with Nova Nordisk, which had its own positive Results out this morning for one of its experimental drugs with regard to weight loss. Nova Nordisk down fractionally about one third of one percent. But Kelly still compared to Pfizer. It seems like a lot of people like that news. I'll send things back over to you. That is very important uh, to watch, Dom. We'll come back to that. Thanks, Dom Chu. Meantime, the June 1st debt ceiling deadline is now only 10 days away. Meanwhile, the Fed keeps insisting they'll continue rate hikes, even if we skip one for now. And tensions between the U.S. and China are back in the spotlight, with Micron, the latest company, getting caught in the crosshairs. This after a unified stand against China at the G7. With so much drama in Washington, let's turn to Kayla Tausche. Today, she's at the White House. And Kayla, first and foremost, let's get the latest on the debt ceiling. Well, Kelly, later today, President Biden's top aides will brief him on where negotiations stand ahead of a critical meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That's at 530 this evening. And they're going to try to break an impasse that has eluded staffers for the last few days. Another meeting of both parties' negotiators just broke up after three hours with no agreement, according to a GOP participant. Here you can see Steve Reschetti, an advisor to the president, and Shalonda Young, the White House budget director, arriving for those talks earlier today on the Hill. Progress stalled often over the 
weekend, and they're still at odds over where to set spending levels and for how long. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has held firm to Republican stance that spending levels, no matter what, must go down as part of any deal. What we have to do here is get the spending addiction to stop. It has caused so much pain to the American people. Inflation, more dependency on China. He wants to spend more than we spent at the height of COVID. We could pull money back that has just sat there. We can grow our economy by making us energy independent. There's so many things we could do to make us stronger and curve inflation. Republicans have proposed an increase in defense spending with steep cuts to social programs, stricter work requirements for Medicaid and food stamp recipients, and no tax hikes. Democrats have proposed flat spending levels, tax increases, and they're open to limited changes to work requirements. So far, that has not been enough to make a deal, and one is not expected to emerge from today's White House meeting, Kelly, but even something short of that that signals progress would be taken as a welcome sign. All right, Kayla, stay with us. Uh, much more to cover. Let's explore where the debt's ceiling and the markets go from here. Joining me now is Richard Bernstein. He is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. And Dan Clifton is in the house as well. He's head of policy research at Strategus, a Baird company. Welcome to you both. Dan, I'll just turn to you with a kind of a quick pile on with the TikTok. Um, you know, can I offer you a frustration of mine is that it feels Please. like the, the debt ceiling, we should be able to be thinking eight steps forward through this already. And even when I read, you know, Washington strategies, like nobody seems to have any answers. And, and I don't know if that's because it's just unknowable, but what do you think is really about to happen in the next couple of days here? Because the market continues to shrug it off. Yeah, well, first, the Treasury Department is in, injecting a lot of liquidity into the system. We think we're going to get another $60, $70 billion of liquidity, and that's going to continue to the debt ceiling. What that's doing is it's cushioning the markets for this very toxic political debate that we have. The reason why investors are conflicted on what's happening with the debt ceiling is that this is just a much more politically polarized environment, both on the far right and on the far left. So there's concerns that they could test that debt ceiling breach. I would argue that if we cross over June 1st, we still have a couple of days of, of cushion, probably to about June 7th. And so there's a little bit of cushion there. But we really needed a deal last night hmm. to be able to get that bill to the president by June 1st. So each day that clicks down that there's no deal, that pressure is going to continue to rise. And Kelly, as you know, interest costs have been exploding and yes. tax revenues have been falling and that's pulling forward the X state. And that's something that we're gonna be watching very carefully today. No, I, but I, ultimately I, this is the first step of austerity. Exactly. And it's the hardest one because Congress isn't ready to do that yet. It's like, I don't wanna get into that all over again, but if people don't go back and watch what you said, Dan, about you know 14% and you know rising debt servicing, like that is the much larger picture here. Of course, now we have to, real quickly, what is the liquidity treasury has been injecting? What do you mean by that? Absolutely, so treasury has what's called the treasury general account. This is the Treasury bank account. It's outside the banking system. When they push that money, that's how they're paying our bills right now. Hmm. So when they make that expenditure, it's going right into the banking system. Janet Yellen's bazooka is bigger than Jay Powell's quantitative tightening. And that will all exist until the debt ceiling gets raised. But once the debt ceiling gets raised, that liquidity gets pulled. And that's why we think there's more risk to the equity market after the debt ceiling gets raised than before. Rich, before we turn to some of the other kind of overhangs, I, I just want to ask about the debt ceiling and how it factors in. You know, the, why are we even talking about it on some level? If you look at the stock market in the way that we're off to the races with, you know, the biggest eight mega or just the fact that we're up in general. I mean, you are as observant as anybody about business cycles and where we appear to be in. Um, do you have any explanation for the trading behavior this year and what comes next, Rich? 
So, so Kelly, I think that we are very much in a speculative environment. I think I've mentioned that to you before. You know, when we have uh, a narrow market where, if I'm not mistaken, year to date, about 50% of the S&P's performance is attributable to three or four stocks, that's not a very healthy environment. That's a very speculative environment. In fact, it looks like it's the most, uh, the narrowest leadership since the tech bubble, the peak of the tech bubble in 99 and 2000. So it's, it's not like the whole stock market is taking part in this. And even today, you see NASDAQ up, you see the broader market doing basically nothing. Right. So, Rich, I guess the question would be in an environment and social media was very fun this weekend because you can watch uh, people one by one trying to figure out, do they throw in the towel and capitulate and just, you know, get a 4,500 price target on the S&P and buy everything? Or do they stick with the bearishness that's been, you know, kind of the prevailing sentiment? And I'm curious what your advice would be to investors who are feeling very frustrated about being on the sidelines if they uh, still are. Well, I, I think, look, I think the opportunity set outside of those five or 10 or 20 names is extraordinary right now. I think if, you know, one has to understand that if you're investing in those five or 10 or 20 names, your implied economic forecast is incredibly bearish. Like only five stocks are going to grow. Five companies are going to grow in the entire global economy. I mean, that's ridiculous. And But that's the implied economic forecast. So I think one has to understand what they're investing in and what the implied economic forecast is. That says to me there are plenty of opportunities around the world, and I wish I could tell people exactly when this kind of mania in these five or ten names is going to stop, but who can? Yeah, I'll kind of jump around topic-wise here, Rich, and just ask you, because you're so bullish on international stocks, um, where does China fall in that? How about Japan? And the bullish, well, it feels like 1989, practically, yeah. uh, on that front. And so can you just kind of say whether those would be included in your enthusiasm for international stocks or are those kind of separate stories? Sure. Both, we're, we are overweight, both Japan and China. Hmm. Uh, I think when, when talking about China, one has to realize this is a cyclical story sort of a 5 to 10 or 6 to 12 month type story, the Chinese central bank is easing, Chinese corporate profits are revving up, and people hate China. That's a, that's a pretty good combination. You know, when we go out past that and we start looking at the development of the Chinese consumer, then we can start talking about more risk on a global scale in terms of potential invasion in Taiwan. Right now, one has to realize that they are the world's biggest exporter. An invasion of Taiwan would be cutting off their nose to spite their face. I don't think they have any intention of doing anything in the next five to ten months. I think the concern might just be literally why is the economy so weak? Why do they are why are they back in deflation? Right? How bad is the property bubble? I mean, why do why do they just keep throwing in the towel and going after international businesses? Like everything they're doing seems to be the opposite of a strategy that would produce solid growth or equity or stock market performance rich. No, I think you're I think you're right on that. Look, there are many risks, Kelly, in the Chinese stock market right now. And I think that's you don't want to invest just saying there are risks. You want to invest saying, look, there are risks. Are we being compensated or overcompensated by the valuations for the risk of that? Given that China sells at about a half to a third of NASDAQ's valuation, and NASDAQ is everybody's darling, I think we are being pretty well compensated for those risks right now. And Kayla, let me turn to you for a little bit of color here, because I was struck, I don't know if others were struck by the unified kind of anti-China stance that this whole uh, Japan summit seemed to have, and it seemed quite intentional, and even China's response to that as well. I'm just curious, kind of, what, what do we read into all of this? 
Well, Kelly, I mean, certainly I think also notable that that summit was taking place in Beijing's backyard. But I'd actually argue that these allies stopped just short of going as hawkish as they possibly could have. Hmm. The communique talked about de-risking and diversifying away from China, trying to bolster domestic supply chains in areas like critical minerals. And to be sure, the White House has gotten support from allies like the Netherlands and Japan in introducing some export controls in sectors like semiconductors on China. But you haven't seen that G7 wide and you haven't seen that product wide beyond chips. And so even though there was a discussion about what additional sectors maybe to introduce here and trying to unify some of these export controls, you have countries like France that are just not on board with this and have a completely different posture toward China. And the president himself yesterday and Secretary Yellen privately to bank CEOs last week all acknowledged that U.S. policy toward China is about to get even tougher when those outbound export controls are released which I'm hearing could happen in the next few weeks. Uh, But certainly that's something that the U.S. is doing unilaterally. And so far, many allies are not uh, joining us in that fight. Yeah, looking at the currency as well, uh, up above seven. Dan Clifton, I turn to you for some uh, investment context here. Sure. Uh, Think about what we're talking about. We're now, for the first time in 40 years, have a high inflation environment, high interest rate environment. We now have an increasing debt servicing cost for the first time in 35 years. And for the first time since the Berlin Wall went down, we're deglobalizing based on what Kayla just said. What that means is that investors should expect higher interest rates, slightly higher inflation, 3% instead of 2 and probably lower PEs on stocks. And you've got to be much more stock selective in this environment. Most investors were investing in a complete opposite environment that we're going into today. And obviously, we think companies need to have their ear to the ground in Washington because Washington's going to have a much bigger impact over their business models moving forward. That's interesting. You never like to hear that. That's an interesting point, I, Rich. I saw you nodding earlier about uh, valuations and whatnot. We'll leave it there. Really appreciate everyone giving us the time today. Kayla Tausche, Richard Bernstein, and Dan Clifton. Now, we mentioned jumping bond yields earlier on. The 10-year was back above 370 today, and that's already having an impact on mortgage rates, a pretty big one, as they're back up near 7% again. Let's get over to Diana Olick for the very latest. Diana? Well, Kelly, the average rate on the 30-year fix has been climbing sharply on concerns over the debt limit and now on new comments, conflicting comments from Fed Presidents Kashkari and Bullard over the future of interest rates. Bond yields took off on that. The average on the 30-year fixed hit 6.95% today. That's up 40 basis points in just one week, all according to Mortgage News Daily. We saw mortgage demand drop last week after rates rose just a little. This one's going to hurt more. If you're buying a $400,000 home with 20% down, your monthly payment went up almost 100 bucks in just one week. Home buyers are already contending with sky-high prices, and they're much more sensitive to even small rate moves than they have been in the past. Zillow recently suggested in a post that if a deal on the debt ceiling was not reached, the average on the 30-year fix could go over 8%. Kelly? Yeah, I can't tell if it's going over 8% either way, because if a deal is reached and people seem to think, well, that means more Fed rate hikes, I'm shocked that the 10-year is as high as it is. It's, it, and we keep talking about this. We had Lawrence Yunan on Thursday or Friday, Diana. And again, he said if we had historical norms, the mortgage rate would be a point lower right now. But that spread is so wide. So it, it really should be a 6% rate right now, not 7 
Right. I mean, look, everything is different post-pandemic and with the Fed pulling out of MBS purchases and all that going into it, it's just not what we're used to seeing. As you said, that spread on the 10-year versus the Fed is very wide right now. I don't see it coming together very soon. Yeah. All right. For now, Diana, thank you. Again, 6.95% on the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage today. Coming up, EQT is coming off its best week in three months after nat gas prices hit their highest level since March. And it's one of the only energy names that's even in the green this year. We'll check in with CEO Toby Rice on a busy deals day for energy next. Plus, another view from the C-suite. The CEO of Freight Waves joins us with exclusive real-time data on the supply chain. And it's not painting a pretty picture for trucking. We'll tell you what it is and why it could mean trouble for the transports and the rest of the market. And as we head to break, let's get a look at the broader indexes. Dow's down 160 right now. S&P has turned negative at 41.89. The Nasdaq's still up a third of a percent. The Russell small cap's up 1% leading the way today. The 10-year sitting right on 370. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Nat gas back in the red today after surging on prospects of tighter U.S. supplies last week. But prices overall have still collapsed 46 percent so far this year. Despite that, there's one gas name that's outperformed every single company in the S&P energy sector so far this year, including the sector itself. And you're looking at it. EQT up 7 percent year to date now. Got to bring in the CEO, Toby Rice. Toby, welcome back. It's good to see you. Hey, thanks, Kelly. What explains this? I mean, buybacks? I mean, you know, are you mining lithium? Like, what, what, what gives? Well, I think it's pretty simple when you step back and you look at it. Number one, uh, EQT is a very high-quality high company. Uh, we've got world-class assets, a low-cost structure, investment-grade balance sheet, and a balance hedge book. All of this produces a durable free cash flow profile uh, that'll, that endures through the downtimes. And it sets up a pretty bright future. We, we've got a five-year free cash flow for, forecast that will allow, allow us to retire the entirety of our market cap. Hmm. Um, in addition to that, it's the quality of the product that we produce. In a world that struggles with energy security, in a world that struggles with rising emissions, our product, natural gas, addresses two of these issues. And natural gas is going to be the energy of the future. Yeah. And for, for those two reasons, you know, the value is being reflected in a, in a performance of our stock. I just read that after shutting down Indian Point, uh, the nuclear plant in New York, that uh, its nat gas use is up. We've talked before about the fragility of Northeast nat gas supplies and so not to get off on that tangent. But just to talk about conditions in the market more broadly, I mean, as we start to see, have we seen the normalization of the Louisiana facility and some of the others that are going to kind of normalize nat gas prices here in the U.S. or not? I mean, what, when do we get back to normal? What is normal? Well, what we've seen uh, today, you know, we had that un unseasonably warm winter, uh, which which pulled a lot of demand out of the market. You've seen operators respond. Uh, to date, we've seen a 15 percent drop in activity counts that will help balance the market. Um, but, you know, we're sitting with, with pretty low prices, as expected, when we have, you know, significant weather events like that. But we are looking at rising prices in the future. And while storage levels are, are relatively full here in the United States and in Europe, um, recognize not really much has changed. Structurally, we're still having a challenge getting pipelines built. Inflation is still rampant. The war in Ukraine rages on and global emissions are still surging. So this is a brief period of time where Consumers are getting some relief on low prices, but I think we're in the eye of the storm and we need to take action yeah. with permit reform to be able to let this industry get back the industrial capacity so we can protect Americans and our allies around the world 
with energy security and the ability to lower global emissions with this natural gas that we have. Yeah, I mean, permit reform is getting so much attention these days. You feel like, okay, maybe something's finally going to happen on that front. Let me ask you about some of the deals lately and how much more deal making needs to happen for the space to be kind of a better return to shareholders. I was struck by who was the deal today with Exxon and the assets where they're they're paying like a 10 percent premium. That's nothing. Right. Like, what does it tell you about sentiment in the energy space? Granted, that's oil, you know, what have you. But when people are just saying, you know what, I don't know what this cycle is going to look like. I'll take the in this case, oh no, Chevron. I'm sorry. In this case, I'll take the Chevron shares. You know, swap those uh, better asset for my shareholders and walk away. I'm just curious about sentiment and, and you know, the prospect for decent returns over the next couple of years and how much consolidation needs to happen. Yeah, Kelly. You know, we have a very fragmented industry here. Um, there's thousands of operators. You know, and in this point in time, the exploration's been take, taking place. We've done the discovery. Now we're about. It's about harvesting. And I think you're seeing some of these smaller operators look at their assets and say, "What? Are, how am I going to create the most v- value from this asset base? Is it going to be part as a small company or is it going to be part of a much bigger company that has greater scale and can pro- provide greater opportunities? And so that is, I think, that motivation for these smaller players to make that determination themselves. That's what we've seen other operators make that decision by trading into EQT. And as the global commodity for natural gas breaks out from being a regional commodity and becomes more of a global commodity. The opportunities only get bigger and the scale is really going to be a differentiator. And, you know, companies like EQT can offer that scale and create value. And I think you're seeing that same type of determination being made on the oil side as well. And I, I guess the last question, I'd, and I don't know if, you know, everyone talks about how we're about to have an El Nino cycle, if that's bearish for our NACAS or bullish, but if it's if other companies want to emulate, you know, the outperformance that you have posted so far, what would they have to do to clean themselves up or to kind of have the right levers to pull in in this kind of environment? Well, I think we've got some really differentiated aspects of our business. It's going to be incredibly difficult to replicate the high quality asset base that EQT uh, has today. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to get that IG grade balance sheet. EQT is certainly unique in that aspect. And just taking an overall disciplined approach uh, in the actions that we've taken to date as it relates to M&A, you know, we're not just looking to to create, uh, to, to, to drive accretion on free cash flow per share and app per share. We're also looking to do deals that make us a better business, lower our cost structure. So we've got a pretty unique strategy. I think that's that's bearing some fruit and, and showing some outperformance. But um, this isn't rocket science, you know, commodity business. Yeah. There, there's some key success and EQT is staying disciplined. You know, to creating the most value for our shareholders. Just to, and I'm glad you made that comment about kind of, you know, what kind of M&A you would be interested in. I mean, obviously we had the One Oak Magellan deal. I don't know if that's ever something that would be interesting to you, but what what would actually lower your expense base? I mean, what, what kind of deals would even fit what you're looking for right now? Well, high quality assets is, is a good start. We're in the process of closing on a transition with Tug Hill. Um, that is an asset that will lower our cost structure by 15 cents. Um, and that's pretty significant. That would have an impact of lowering our cost structure by about $300 million hmm. per year. It starts with high quality acreage, proximity to your relation to your, to your existing asset base, and that's going to unlock the ability for us to achieve some synergies, which would be over and atop those benefits, but that, that would add another you know, four cents lowering on our cost structure, another $80 million per year. Um, but it takes discipline, and there's a lot of deals out there, and, and we've got a, certainly a very high bar. And today, you know, what we're looking at, which is a, certainly an attractive acquisition opportunity for us, is our own stock. And that we've got the resource to execute our buyback program and continue the success on that front as well. Very interesting. Toby, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. 
All right. Thanks, Kelly. Toby Rice is the CEO of EQT. Coming up, you think you know macro? Here's your chance to prove it. It's the econ version of the National Spelling Bee. It's happening right now in New York City. We're going to have it here. And who better to host it than our very own Steve Leisman? He is live at the New York Fed as the excitement builds. Hi, everybody. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly, yeah, we just got finished with the first round and Mount Hebron from Maryland beat 6,500 students from around the country to become the tops in the David Ricardo division. When we come back, we have the advanced division, the Adam Smith division. We'll have four high schools facing off and you can come in and turn in after the break to find out if you're smarter than a 12th grader when it comes to economics. Let's have a big round of applause for Mount Hebron. Welcome back to the exchange. A jump in bond yields having not, no, no major effect across the major averages today. The Dow is still down 100 points, but the S&P fluctuating now back in positive territory by five, and the Nasdaq's up half a percent. Let's check on some of the movers this afternoon, where Alphabet, Microsoft, and Meta all hitting new 52-week highs today. Uh, you can see the one-year gains. Again, this going back a full calendar year, so not year-to-date smooths out a little bit of this inflection that happened right around the turn of the year. year one-year gains now are starting to look pretty impressive. Up 15% for Google, up 26% for Microsoft, and up almost 30% for Meta. What's been the big driver year-to-date? You know the answer to that. AI. There is a TrueShares Tech AI and Deep Learning ETF. It's ticker Learns, L-R-N-Z. And it is up 17% just in May. Compare that with the S&P's half a percent gain. Top performers in this ETF this month, Zscaler, Datadog, CrowdStrike, all up between 20 and 43% this month. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Uh, There is an ETF for everything, isn't there, Kelly? All right, here's your update for this hour. The murder suspect accused of fatally stabbing four Idaho college students last November stood silent in court today, forcing a judge to enter not guilty pleas on his behalf. Prosecutors now have 60 days to give notice if they will seek the death penalty against Brian Koberger. He is tentatively set to stand trial October 2nd. The Consumer Product Safety Commission announced a recall of 456,000 Power XL waffle makers from Empower Brands. The company received 44 reports of issues with the devices. 34 resulted in burns and three people needed medical attention. The affected models were sold from July of 2021 through October of last year, 2022. And Carmelo Anthony is retiring after 19 years in the NBA. He finished his career with more than 28,000 points, making him the league's ninth top scorer in history. Anthony, who went unsigned last season, shared his decision in a pre-taped announcement on social media. He ended his career with the L.A. Lakers, but spent the bulk of his seasons with the New York Knicks. Although, to to some of us, he'll always uh, be a Syracuse orange man. (laughs) Tyler, thanks. I'll see you next hour. Coming up, a nightmare for the trucking industry. The key metric falling to a record low and why it means more downside ahead for drivers. The exchange back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We often talk about the Dow transports as a leading indicator for the market or the economy. But on an even more micro level, there are alarm bells going off inside the trucking industry about impending weakness. The tender rejection level just hit an all-time low, surpassing even the lows of COVID. As truckers become so desperate for cargo, they're accepting basically any rate for any shipment. And my next guest says it could get even worse from here. Joining us is Craig Fuller. He is the FreightWaves founder and CEO. Craig, it's good to have you on today. Welcome. 
Uh, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I have to confess, every time I, I look at what you or others in the industry are tweeting lately, it's been a lot of bad news. So what exactly happened? And is it macro or is it industry specific? Yeah, it is certainly doom and gloom. Uh, some have described this as as bad as the Great Recession. And I've even heard statements that it, they are folks that believe it will actually get worse than Great Recession. So that just tells you how much pain is currently in the market. Um, really, what's caused this is a classic boom and bust cycle. You know, trucking at its core is a commodity, uh, which means when you have really robust uh, pricing and robust conditions, you're going to have a lot of new entrants that enter the market to take advantage of that. And that has caused the bust cycle. So as really we've come off the COVID economy, sort of round trip the broader economic activity in the goods economy, um, what we've also ended up with is a lot more capacity than we had before. That's super interesting because obviously that happens in commodities all the time. You know, you get oil prices go to 100, a ton of people start drilling. Next thing you know, they're at 30 and everyone's debt go bad and it goes bad. And no one can recover. So is the, I mean, how much worse could it get? And, and is there a macro sort of warning point here or is it just, hey, there were too many people who came into the industry. They all need to go out of business, but there's no larger business cycle implications. Well, there's certainly that element of a trucking specific sort of run on it. Different between the oil sector and what we see in trucking is the barriers to entry to start a trucking company are uh, just don't exist. It's True. very easy for someone to go buy a truck and get financing. Whereas if I'm going to uh, drill for oil, it's a lot more capital that's involved as, as well as I have to have those leases, which tend to, to go at much higher rates than what it takes to run a trucking company. So what you end up with is a market because it is so accessible and there is no moat, uh, it's very easy for people to get into the market. I think looking forward, and what this means for the U.S. economy really at large, is the goods part of the economy uh, has largely slowed down. We're seeing that through a lot of the core sectors that drive freight demand. Um, and, but we believe, at least our assumptions and our assessments are, is that uh, the freight market is telling us, if you sort of believe that the freight market is a leading indicator by about six months of the broader U.S. economy, uh, we believe that the broader U.S. economy is slowing down more so than what uh, a lot of people uh, recognize, simply because we're seeing such uh, uh, really soft freight demand. Oh, sure. What uh, about people who say, well, that's just because everyone's, you know, in hotels and on airplanes and they're traveling to the Caribbean and it's all services now. And so the goods thing is, is over-exaggerated. Well, some of that's tr certainly true. There has been a displacement in how consumers spend their money. Uh, but when you look at the sectors that drive a lot of the core parts of our economy, things like housing uh, and really the whole uh, elements around the housing sector, uh, that certainly is, is showing signs of, of concern. But really just discretionary goods consumption. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a friend that owns a small liquor store. Uh, he's down 11 percent year over year simply because people are not buying as much of these goods. You look at the cardboard box industry, they're also reporting a, a lot of challenges. And so certainly this is a goods challenge or a goods part of the economy challenge. But I think it's going to play out in the broader part of the economy as these sectors slow down. There sure. just isn't as much production. You know, it, it's like, but the Fed says, you know, maybe we'll skip what may, maybe we'll pause. You know, I just feel it. I wish I heard a little bit more urgency sometimes in, in responding to these early leading indicators. That aside, the last time we checked in with you is actually after the collapse of SVB. And your firm was directly impacted by that. In a way, I'm surprised that, you know, the industry more broadly hasn't been. But if you don't mind, just what's an update? How has it been for you the last couple of months kind of navigating that incredible uncertainty? Yeah, I mean, we were, as I told you on the last time I was here, uh, that our board was able to advance us the money. Uh, SVB systems came up uh, by Wednesday of that week. So we were actually not only able to make payroll by our own organic 
capital, but we also were able to access all of our uh, bank lines and uh, banking systems within just a couple of days. So it really was a, uh, it certainly gave us concern and pause, but it didn't disrupt our business in any way that, that has impacted us. I think one of the big concerns is just the talking to small business owners is what happens with bank lending and how the banks are responding in terms of uh, managing their own balance sheets and, and how willing they are to lend capital. Uh, certainly, um, the trucking industry, the, the only party that can regulate new capacity or new entrance into the market are actually the banks. True. And so banks actually slowing down lending, while it's not a positive for the broader economy, it actually would be positive for the trucking economy because it means a lot of new entrants would not come into the trucking industry. So in some ways, we're looking at that. We've not seen any data that suggests the banks have tightened up credit to new uh, trucking companies, but it's something that we're certainly watching. Yeah, we know that it's been tightening up overall, so probably part of that as well. Craig, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much. We appreciate Thanks, it. Craig Filler with Freight Waves. One of the regional bank stocks on the move this hour. Uh, actually, Dom Chu has a market flash. It's not a, what, who, is it PacWest, Dom? It is. It's related, right? So it's PacWest Bancorp. Those shares are near the highs of the day right now. You can see north of 14, now 18% session highs at this point now. The upside is being driven for the most part by news that the embattled Western U.S. Regional Bank has come to deal terms to sell a $2.6 billion portfolio of real estate construction loans to a unit of California-based real estate firm Kennedy Wilson Holdings. Now, they've also got another deal for another set of construction loans worth about $363 million in place that's pending approvals. It's all basically helping to improve PacWest's overall liquidity profile. Those shares of PacWest, by the way, even with that big 19% gain so far, are still, you can see, down about 70% over the course of this year-to-date period. So a lot of ways to go, but still... On the regional bank side of things, it's a positive incremental development, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Tom, thank you. Still ahead, everyone's trying to position to profit from the AI gold rush. And our next guest is calling this company a clear leader. The stock up 28% this year, 16% this month. And he says there's still more room to run. We've got the name next and what makes it such a standout. Plus, it's just about time for some of the nation's smartest high schoolers to show us just how much they know about the economy on live television. No pressure, guys. We'll dip in live to the National Economics Challenge. Steve Leisman getting ready to kick off the next round of questions. You will see it right here on on the other side of this break, Dow's down 100. Welcome back. It's kind of the economics version of the National Spelling Bee. Almost 6,500 high school students entered the National Economics Challenge this year. They're battling it out for the top spot. Our own Steve Leisman is hosting the event. He is standing by live to kick off the Advanced Division National Competition Finals. We get to watch and maybe play along live. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly, thanks very much. We're about to begin the Council of Economic Education's competition for the Adam Smith Division. That's the advanced division we have here. And these high school kids, they're, they're not just smart, they're PhD smart. I really think like uh, chatbots got nothing on these kids here, really. Uh, left standing to compete today after a brutal series of elimination rounds, we have on my right there, Carmel High School from Indiana. <laughs> we have the Gwinnett School of Mathematics, Science, and Technology from Georgia. We have Hunter College High School from right here in New York. And Phillips Exeter Academy from New Hampshire. You're all winners for getting this far, but only one school takes home the coveted crown 
of the biggest economic geeks in the country. You guys all know the rules. We've talked about it. We have a series of judges that are gonna judge us. Here we go. Let's play the National Economic Challenge. Question number one. Assume Clara's nominal salary is rising by 10% per year while inflation is at 4% per year. How long would it take for Clara's real income to double? Five seconds, get something on your board. Time is up, board's up. Carmel High School. 12 years. Gwinnett. 11.17 years. Hunter. Uh, approximately 12 years. Philip Exeter. 12 years. And the answer? So the answer is either 12 years or 11.7 years. So Carmel is correct. Um, Hunter College High School is correct, and Philip Exeter is correct. Okay, one point each. All right, here we go. Moving on to question two, the score, Carmel one, Hunter College one, Phyllis Exeter one, it's a, and Gwinnett zero. If a movie theater were to raise its ticket prices from $10 to $15, and ticket sales drop from 300 to 225, how is the price elasticity of demand characterized and what is the effect on total revenues? 20 seconds. Yeah. And five seconds now. Time is up. Hey, time's up, board's up. Carmel High School. Inelastic total revenue increases. Gwinnett. Inelastic total revenue increases. Hunter. Unit elastic total revenue does not change. Philip Exeter. Inelastic total revenue increases. So the answer is inelastic and positive or increases. So Carmel uh, is correct. Hunter College High School and Philip Exeter is correct. Wait, got it? Sorry, correction. Carmel High School is correct. Gwinnett is correct. Hunter College is incorrect. And Philip Exeter is correct. Okay, so now, is that the correct score, Chris? We have two, yeah. Okay, there we go. We have Carmel and Phyllis Exeter tied at two, Gwinnett at one, and Hunter College at one. And now for question three. The social security tax changes from proportional to regressive at an income level of 100. Oh, I have, yeah, I have so many questions. 
I'm sitting here, the last one, I'm like, how is that inelastic if they raise the price and the revenue drop? I have to go back. Uh, I wouldn't survive in the National Economics Challenge. That is true. I would not have gotten that last answer right. Our thanks to Steve Leisman uh, and to the uh, the whole group who made this uh, work for us and allowed us to watch and join in a little bit. Uh, that was the National Economics Challenge, as I mentioned, the finals. Uh, for more, you can go to youtube.com slash CNBC television, and you can continue to follow along. It's a very fun event. There is more on Power Lunch next hour as well. We will be with the winners, so uh, we'll see which one of these four teams can go all the way. Still ahead here, AI has been a big catalyst for big tech lately, but my next guest says there is one name that may not be getting the headlines it deserves, but is emerging as a clear leader. He will join us with the name and the reason why next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're highlighting a new AI play that you might not have heard of yet. Take a look at shares of Dynatrace this year. They're up more than 28% so far and coming off a strong earnings report just a couple of days ago. The software harnesses artificial intelligence for a host of uses, including business analytics and application security. And my next guest believes they could be one of the leaders of the AI race. Joining me now is Keith Bachman of BMO Capital Markets. With a buy rating on the stock, he says Dynatrace is a clear leader in AI. It's good to see you, Keith. And how do you know this isn't just hype? and, you know, branding or whatever? Well, sure. First off, uh, I just feel fortunate I wasn't p- part of the last, uh, the economic challenge, so happy to be talking about Dynatrace. Um, and in terms of AI, you have to think about the big picture of AI and then this new c- category called generative AI, which is what Microsoft and many other leaders are talking about. Uh, in terms of Dynatrace, they have been a leader in the bigger picture AI uh, and, and we think that provides sustainable competitive advantage. And what it really, to put it in simple terms, what Dynatrace enables uh, organizations such as Bank of Montreal to do is to uh, keep track of how our network and applications are performing. And there's a tremendous amount of automation built into it so that we can do it effectively, uh, both from a performance basis and also from a cost basis. And so what Dynatrace really does is, again, leverage the bigger picture AI in terms of automating a a number of IT functions. Sure, if I could, I might call it, you know, kind of enterprise AI or something like that, systems AI. I mean, I just have to imagine there's a host of companies who want to race into the market with similar offerings. What makes theirs unique or or what is their moat, so to speak? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, both scalability and really developed practices around AI. So for instance, for what Dynatrace can do is automatically identify where a problem is, number one. Two is give organizations help on what's the biggest problem, where's the priority. And three is remediate, which is a fancy word for saying help solve the problem. And when you have an organization that's 40,000 or 50,000 people, um, it, it, it tends to produce many different problems. And so we think Dynatrace's AI capabilities are far in advance what the competitors can do. Do you think they're going to get out in a bigger way, you know, to become one of the poster children for AI or or to kind of, you know, hold their cards a little closer to the vest? Um, I don't know. I'm just curious about, you know, again, most of the companies seem to be so eager to get out there and use the AI term, you know, 13,000 times on their earnings calls and what have you. Um, Is Dynatrace that kind of company? Not really. I think, look, a lot of every company we deal with is focusing on and presenting an AI strategy right now. And some of it is candidly a little bit of catch up. Dynatrace has had a pretty formidable um, capability 
capabilities on AI for the last two years, or last several years, I should say, and probably hasn't been promotional uh, about those capabilities. But but I think uh, over the course of time, investors will come to understand that, that Dynatrace really is a leader in the broader category of AI, which, again, creates sustainable competitive advantage, in our opinion. You raised your price target to 55. It is trading at a 51 times forward P.E., yeah, we tend to focus in software world, we tend to focus more on cash flow, and it's trading uh, just under 40 times free cash flow. And we think the sustainable growth is called plus or minus kind of 20% as we look out over the next couple of years. So relative to those growth dynamics and free cash flow generation, we still think the risk reward uh, tilts very positive here. Well, and certainly if people agree that this is a name they need to have in their portfolio for, uh, for the AI chase. Keith, thanks for joining us and highlighting it. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Keith Bachman with BMO Capital Markets. That does it for us on The Exchange. Thanks for your time, everybody. And for more analysis on markets and the economy, you can get my newsletter, cnbc.com slash newsletters to sign up. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.